Hi, Serena. Hello. We had um, uh, a team meeting, um, so we so we are a little bit late. I'm sorry about being a little bit late, everyone. Uh, but thank you for coming. So um, we um, started having these rooms on Sundays. We thought to. Um, you know, we have a lot of guest speakers throughout the week. Um, it can get like once the weeks go on and on, it can be kind of difficult to remember what we all discussed and uh, what the rooms were about. But also if you didn't have time to um, attend all the rooms uh, or and you don't want to go through hours of replays, which I can totally understand, we decided to make these uh, weekly recap rooms where we shortly summarize um, what our guest speakers talked about here. And then the idea is to make out of this room then uh, a newsletter audio version, a shorter one, uh, where it summarizes again what went on this week in the Science Society. And then we will post it. We have now a podcast account, Spotify. And we have a YouTube account and then we'll post these recap rooms additionally to the regular room replays to um, to all these accounts. So uh, I, for example, I really like um, Blink and stuff like that. I used it for a while a lot. Not that I still use it, but I think um, it's also a very useful um, uh, way of um, just getting a, a summarized version of things. I think it has definitely, uh, thank you, Blake. <laughs> I appreciate that um, in the chat. So, okay, so uh, let's start with the paper that is uh, pinned to the room. Um, we had the senior author, uh, Kik Yang Yi, uh, here talking about um, about this research. Also, I wanted to give you again a short summary about the guest speaker. He is a really uh, distinguished um, a, a professor that received a lot of awards, um, including here in the US. He was a professor at MRI University to, for many years, for over 10 years, I think 15 years or so. And now he's the department chair of uh, Shen Institute um, of Advanced Technology in China, but he still uh, collaborates a lot with Emory University. Um, so um, this paper is one of these collaborations um, and they are actually moving on to having early stage clinical, preclinical and clinical trials. Um, and this paper is about um, that the hormone FSH, uh, uh, if you block this hormone, it improves cognition in mice with Alzheimer's disease. And why they came about to do this project and to try blocking this hormone is um, the, the prevalence of Alzheimer's in women is uh, threefold higher than in men. And it is known that um, um, during and after menopause um, that um, this hormone is um, higher in women. 
and it was known to um, with the increase of this hormone that a specific like that right away some cognition um, decline is observed in women um, and quite like it's quite prevalent um, so uh, yeah they started studying this hormone uh, more um, more um, systematically and they found that uh, the blockage can improve cognition in mice with Alzheimer's so um, yeah so they are designing a human study and it's really exciting and I think it will be really uh, helpful for the future if you have any short comments on this in the meantime I'll start pinning uh, the the next one yeah, I just point out that it was noted that there's there's multiple routes to the the cognitive decline in the dementia and with Alzheimer's and uh, in men it was more metabolic and and um, and hypertension, but um, but certainly the the three to one observed in women is in part two to the FSH pathway. Yes, and the interesting thing is that they are studying if, um, because on one hand in men there's less prevalence in Alzheimer's, but more um, a higher prevalence of Parkinson, and they see that it's basically the same underlying uh, disease, just in different cell types, uh, that it just affects different cell types in men and women basically, and um, they are now looking if FSH that is still present in men, um, if it contributes to the Parkinson um, illness. Um, the reasoning why I think it still makes sense, although FSH is um, lower in men, is that estrogen um, throughout life in women until menopause protective acts as a protective agent basically and then once the estrogen drops FSH can do its harm basically and um, uh, that this protection doesn't really occur throughout life that much in a man and we know that the cell death uh, starts way earlier than when before we see any symptoms of Parkinson. We only start seeing symptoms of Parkinson's disease once already over 50% of the neurons are dead because the brain does a really good job at compensating for a loss. So, um, so that's why I still think it makes sense to study it. And the discussion led to the clear follow-on, what about hormone replacement therapy? And essentially the jury wasn't, con you know, it wasn't conclusive that, uh, that it would help, but there's still some suggestion there. So further investigation. Just quickly, FSH stands for follicle stimulating hormone. Is that right? Yes. Thank you. Okay, if, uh, if somebody in the audience has comments or questions about uh, what we discussed, if we go through it too fast, please 
comment in the chat or just raise your hand and participate. Um, so, um, yeah. Then the next paper that was discussed was by um, our guest speaker, Dr. Tita Sengupta. She was, um, when she did the research, a graduate student at Yale University. Um, she's originally from India. Um, she did her um, education at the Institute of Science and Education Research, Kolkata, India. And she is now a postdoc uh, researcher in, at Princeton University. And um, so uh, this paper is a neurodevelopmental paper and it's really extensive work. It basically summarizes her whole PhD, which is an amazing PhD <laughs> project. It's uh, so, um, so yeah, you wanna chime in? I'm sorry, I don't see the oh, screen. I was, I was just cheering it on. Yeah, it was a real tour de force, both experimentally and in terms of the findings and implications. Yeah, it's amazing. So the first thing they did was develop a whole new microscope system uh, to, um, to, in order to uh, observe these uh, mechanisms that happened during development. Um, so that was the first thing. So, <laughs> so, uh, so she, they, they developed first this really cool tool that enables, enabled them to observe throughout time in a living um, tissue the, um, and the living organism was C. elegans. It's like a very broadly used uh, animal model for um, basic cell neural um, uh, mechanisms uh, because we know pretty much almost everything about we know every single neuron we know um we know the genome we know how to change it uh so um we can do basic behavioral stuff like uh, modern neuron stuff uh, we can even do some threat uh, response so it's a really cool model and a lot of big scientists use this model to uh, give us a lot of really uh, important insight into how neurons work and so on and so forth. So um, so they developed this um, system where you can continuously observe um, the development of the neurons without damaging the system. Because the problem is if you keep making Im detailed images of any living tissue, uh, you usually damage it quite extensively and you cannot keep doing it. To get, for example, really good to photon images of like uh, little synapses and dendritic arbors and calcium response, um, you get um, photo damage pretty quick, like after a minute or so. So, um, so they developed a system where you can keep doing the, keep performing these images at a quite um, detail uh, throughout um, the development, which is really uh, very cool. And 
they, you know, also the data um, analysis platform they developed is very impressive. And you can look it all up, how it works, and it's the, the platform they developed, you know, everyone can just go ahead and, and use it. So that's the first thing they did. And then on top of it, they figured out how um, uh, these neurons find their place where they're supposed to be to be functioning in the network and what the mechanisms are. And then on top of that, they even figured out how to manipulate that. And um, so it's a really extensive work. And um, yeah, it gives us a really good insight into those mechanisms. And this is important for so many things in the future, especially regenerative um, medicine. Uh, let's say we start making new tissue for people and innovate the tissue and, and um, also neurodevelopmental disorders. Like this will be helpful on so many fronts. Um, so yeah, this was really great work, but please go ahead and, and comment if you would like. Yeah, I thought that the, you know, the um, insights and you know, of what was observed was, was profound in the sense that um, there's pioneering neurons, uh, sorry, pi initially pioneering uh, glial cells, but then um, uh, early neurons that sort of lay out the territory and express, I believe it was SYG1 and 2 as a, as a ligand receptor pair. Um, but then follow-on neurons uh, uh, can follow a gradient, and the zipper mechanism that she describes, I believe, is successively laying down desmosomes, which is the, you know, these adhesion proteins across neurons, um, and presumably that they can lay new ones down and pick old ones up. But in essence, it it was a um, a wonderful insight into how neurons can uh, lay down an initial structure and have uh, following neurons fall into uh, or basically extend the structure uh, through genetic control of these expression proteins. So fascinating, fascinating implications. Yeah, and then also like um, mechanic pull and push is also really important. So um, yeah, it's uh, was really impressive work. Because I missed that session, I was curious how this this technique was different. I understand in terms of damage, but like in terms of the mechanics, how about were there any details on that? I actually missed the the the. the the details of the physics behind the imaging method too, and I and I'll have to go back and and look at it deeper. But it it really seems um, significant in the sense that it avoids the you know can damage that contemporary methods um, have to deal with. So she didn't go, she went more into detail um, in the, you know, in the biology part. Um, the uh, results rather than the technology. Yeah, um, how they did the 
SMP mapping and um, so it is in the core it is confocal imaging um, but they um, they use like a different um, spinning disk um, and um, they used of course the fluorescent um, tagged fusion proteins we lost your audio katarina I think her Wi-Fi might have cut out because the mic just went unmuted, or muted rather. Uh, there we go. She's back. I think. Katarina, I'm not sure if you can hear me or not, but try coming in and out of the room again. That might help. Uh, uh, before uh, Karina can uh, continue out, just quickly, quickly, uh, because I, this is really late for me uh, uh, to to it's kind of overstretch in order to join this room and uh, after a meeting. So I'll, I'll just quickly uh, do my part uh, fill in for the uh, the Zandropy uh, talk that I really liked and. Uh, uh, it's uh, entropy is a Z uh, plus entropy. I believe uh, the Dr. ZK Liu from uh, Professor Liu from um, Penn State uh, used that Z from um, it's a German word for for sum. So essentially, it's a sum of entropy. And uh, uh, entropy components. I mean, and uh, it's very cute. Or I, I think there's some, probably some movie or something related to that as well. The uh, what what's interesting of this work is is actually uh, it uh, enables the uh, how should I say it is it's it's a mathematical provable uh, theorem. Uh, Katarina, I'll just quickly finish uh, with the, uh, uh, the Zentropy part, and uh, I'll give the map pack to you soon. The um, uh, I think the uh, the in in terms of um, uh, applications, we don't always be able to uh, uh, access the the finest the the true and the true entropy. So what we do is uh, we do some type of a coarse graining and uh, say we pick a level uh, uh, from the bottom, uh, two, two layers up from the bottom 
we can say N1 is the finest level and N2 is the is one level above, is coarser. Uh, so at that level, we can define some uh, using conditional probability define entropy. You can think of, you know, uh, uh, a four by four like grid at the very bottom. Now we are one level above is like two by two. So uh, now we do we, we do calculation, we define entropy at the two by two level, uh, then at that layer. Then uh, for each square, we have a SK that's essentially it's the we basically sum up the finer level and uh, use that to sum up as the sum of the uh, finer level and then uh, plug into the uh, which you know uh, if you are in the room then another uh, uh, physicist Hansen uh, were able you know to point it out, it's actually provable. It's a very exciting uh, results. That's actually uh, Professor Liu acknowledged that uh, you know, it's, it's, it's also the recent work is uh, uh, their paper, 19, uh, uh, 2019. And uh, yeah, so in basically this work, uh, this formula will uh, allow, uh, uh, I mean, I uh, I mean the concept of entropy they propose uh, allow uh, a more flexible application uh, to systems where you know uh, measurement and uh, information is not readily available from the uh, most refined level. Yeah, I think that's a, a very interesting. That's that's what I got out of. The, please uh, add. Uh, uh, more uh, to complete the picture. Yeah, I, I'm going to sign off after this. Thank you. Yeah, that was very fascinating work. Um, it had both, uh, you know, it offered a theoretical treatment and accounting, but um, in the applied section, uh, it was demonstrated that it it was instrumental in uh, tracking particular behavior and materials at, at phase transitions um, in, in that weren't really accessible in other ways. So it had, had practical applications for computational material science as well. So it, it was excellent work. And that's the value of getting a whole bunch of people who are really into science together. We get to cross-pollinate the ideas and maybe you take a technique from here. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. It's, it's uh, I love it. So Katarina, are you back? Yeah, can you guys hear me now? Yes. I'm so sorry. I, I was talking and talking about the, the methods they were using and I didn't hear that, you know, people couldn't hear me. And since I'm on the paper, then I don't see the screen. So I really apologize. Uh, somehow was a glitch up in my side. No worries, no worries. So yeah, thank you, Frank, for uh, describing it. And I just wanted to also tell you a little bit about uh, Dr. Liu. Um, he's a really accomplished uh, professor at Penn 
Pennsylvania State University. Uh, he was actually, he founded the NSF Center for Computational Materials Designs and was the director there for many years. And he coined the term materials genome. He published like over 540 papers. What was this paper? It's 565. Five, five was 565 papers. <laughs> And he is published and reviewing it, and he will present it to us once it's out. So uh, yeah, he's a he is really nice, and he he went really like he I think he enjoyed the room a lot, and um, yeah, he was really a fun speaker to have. So yeah, he's so impressive. He made like on the night. He asked for the audio file and during like at 7 a.m. in the morning, he already sent me a YouTube video he made out of our meeting because he had the Zoom screen on at the same time. So there is already a YouTube video with him talking with the video and the slides at the same time. So yeah, he is a very efficient, very interesting and knowledgeable uh, person. Yeah, I, I think yeah, I agree. Uh, Professor Liu is the type of a scholar that uh, the best for Clubhouse, for Science Society. Yeah, he it was a lot of fun. Like, even if you didn't understand the science that well, I think it was a lot of fun. So I saw in the chat that, uh, yeah, Jonathan, oh, but he's not here anymore. Anyways, I wanted to tell him once he goes through like a week or two of our rooms, he will, he will, I think you will get like the basic knowledge to understand any science topic, at least the, the basic idea of it. Uh, if you go through our training, basically, <laughs> I think. We, well, we really do try to balance getting deep into the technical aspects of the paper, but also making that accessible to a wider audience. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, I think the speakers do a good job of giving first, like the broad idea why and uh, like the broad um, understanding of it. And then with our questions, we we get quite technical, but I think one will get the understanding of the basics. So then we had uh, the senior scientist and uh, the PhD student, both very accomplished um, scientists already. Um, the PhD student, he was already on over 12 uh, publications and he has its own YouTube channel and he's also here on Clubhouse. And then the the professor, so that is Manish Giern, if you look for him on Clubhouse. Um, they are at the McGill University. And then uh, Danilo Bzdok, um, he is a medical doctor and he has two PhDs. So uh, one from, um, so his medical um, doctor degree has from the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. And then 
He did one PhD at Harvard Medical School in brain imaging neuroscience and one PhD in computer science and machine learning statistics at the INRIA Saclay Neurospin uh, University of France. So <laughs> I feel like I feel so dumb and lazy <laughs> when I read that. Anyways, uh, they did a really impressive very large-scale study where they looked at um, text data from um, self um, self-posted text data of uh, people that were taking different hallucinogenic um, compounds they also had brain imaging data from those data sets that are publicly available and went through so this is the largest ever a systematic um, study in this field um, that was ever done with computational analysis and i i really like that study a lot because it brings kind of a more very systematic um, uh, way of thinking and going through the data and they really saw interesting patterns in the language data and then the brain imaging data and they went through a really uh, large data set of a lot of different hallucinogens so um yeah i really recommend reading the study if you're interested in that field and we discussed we asked how um, diverse the population is and um, we can, there's for sure in the future we have to do a better job at having a more diverse population in these studies. But um, it's a start and I think it's a huge start and um, it's, um, it brings kind of a systematic scientific um, approach into the field that was never done before so i really appreciated their study and their sharing of the study here if you have any comments please go ahead i took notes i take notes on all of our sessions just because i don't know i do that but there were seven thousand reports that they pulled from uh, there were 27 different classes of substances utilizing 40 biopathways and there were 14,000 words and they were able to roughly break it down into um, visuals versus reality were sort of the two ideas that came up the most in the, the self-attestation. So I liked that part. Yeah, it was interesting how they had, um, you know, a factor space down to um, the receptor types and, and um, you know, the the speakers were were really leaning into well give us you know so it would associate or it would point out uh, word phrases commonly used in these self-reports and these texts and mapped onto these uh, receptor subtypes and so you know give us an example of phrases for um but but one of the examples was that in for the you know the M nmda receptor words you know more like universe and and um, you know 
uh, oh, I can't remember. Inhale something. an entity. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, you know, just as the extremes, but it, it, it gave, you know, a, a, a component dimension to um, those receptor subtypes. So it was interesting. It gave you a, a, a factor space to, uh, you know, sort of separate the, uh, the different word and phrase usages and how that might map onto different receptor uh, subtypes. So fascinating stuff. I liked how it was both qualitative and quantitative observations. They integrated both of them really well. Yeah, it's always fascinating to me how much language actually reflects uh, what is going on in our state of mind. It's, uh, it's really, I think it's really interesting. And I like that approach because I use that approach for different studies that I did. Uh, for mental health related. So, um, of course, I'm biased, but uh, this was, that's why it was extra impressive to me to, um, you know, to, to see those patterns and uh, how much can tell us what is actually going on, which is cool because it's so much cheaper in the long run. Once we established that with brain imaging and so on, and I did this in a depression study where they did also brain imaging and use different um, drugs, um, antidepressant drugs with uh, naive patients. Um, once we really established how that language is a quite reliable reflection of what's actually happening in the brain, um, it's so much cheaper and it's so much, like it's scalable. It's really impossible to scan all the brains of people that have mental health disorders because those devices are really expensive and uh, not broadly available, especially around the world. So um, if we can continuously establish that language screening, um, the, the better because that we can actually turn into a scalable um, analysis tool. So which uh, we had the room a while ago with Dr. Fields that is actually working on um, a more scalable version of brain imaging where he developed this brain um, scanning headset that uh, usually, what, what does an MRI and all these devices cost? Like a million, half a million? You can uh, get the cheap ones on eBay. They're, they're like 30,000, but they're the old <laughs> ones. <laughs> yeah, really old. So, but and they're huge and stuff, right? You cannot, people have to lay down quite still. And um, so it's really not an ideal um, situation to do brain imaging and certainly not a scalable one. So Dr. Field, I guess, because we had here, I think a month ago or so uh, in February, uh, he is developing or developed a device that uh, you, is a headset. Uh, you can, uh, the good thing is you can uh, move with it and um, it's way cheaper. What I think the cost was right now for a new one, um, 30,000. And this is the beginning cost of the technology, right? When you have a higher um, demand and uh, systemize the production, it can get even more cheaper. So 
that was another amazing uh, guest speaker we had here. But it's it wasn't this week. It was a while ago. So yeah, we should have started these uh, way earlier. <laughs> These recap rooms. Um, another very cool research team we had here. Again, we had the uh, two scientists that the senior scientist, Dr. Jawitz, and uh, his um, his colleague, Dr. Chargo Hapshi. Um, they were here presenting how um, ballooning and spiders using multiple silk threads uh, work. Um, that was a really cool um, uh, mechanical, more engineering type of study um, using uh, machine learning. They developed these models of um, how um, ballooning and spiders work. So for people that don't know, spiders uh, can actually kind of fly. So they use this very long silk threads and then uh, they can fly for miles and miles. Uh, hundreds of miles was what they said. I was like, wow, really? <laughs> so that's how they spread around the world, I guess. Um, and people didn't really know how this works. So, um, and they did a really cool model that makes way more sense than what was um, thought before. And um, they, um, their hypothesis is that this ballooning um, is caused by the presence of a negative electric charge of the spider silk threads and the positive electric potential in the uh, um, field in the Earth's atmosphere. Um, so yeah, they presented this model. Let me try to find the YouTube video they created where you can check the model out. I'll pin that. And in the meantime, maybe if anyone wants to add something, comment, please do. What was cool about the mechanism is it, I was curious how how does the spider separate the charges to in essence have a net negative charge on the silk and and in essence it it came back to you know rapidly ejecting the the uh, the spider silk um, so in essence a you know mechanical based charge separation to you know give it a, a net negative. On the on the silk, and that um, that allowed this uh, this spider silk to carry this charge. And of course, there's clear weight limitations in, in how this effect could could work, but it was fascinating. Yeah, I agree. It's a really cool study, and. Um... Yeah, they will be for sure also back again uh, with updates and with different projects. And um, yeah, I don't know, but um, yeah, they, they, they were a really good team at presenting this. Dennis, you wanted to say something? My favorite part of that talk was how um, the spiders used the structures on the back of their legs to do things, um, you know, integrating the their anatomy played with 
earth physics. That was, that was really cool. Okay, let me get the last link. Um, on Friday, we had um, another guest speaker that is um, that uses a different approach. It's again computational. Um, that he so oh yeah, there's a link. So Dr. Sean Chen, he is. Um, in the UK at Cambridge University. And what he does, he builds, um, he goes through data, hospital records, and um, analyzes them and visualizes them for clinicians so they can um, evaluate the effect of different interventions on patients and also explore the potential risk of interventions and factors of interventions that like how useful they are, what's the status and what the outcome is. So basically uh, provide a more data-driven approach and more systematic approach to, um, to evaluate different interventions um, that are uh, being utilized in the hospital. So this was again, a pretty big study um, where in this case he he his expertise are also in COVID nineteen data sets, dementia, schizophrenia, and so on. So he will hopefully, um, yeah, he agreed to also come back and and um, tell us a little bit more about um, his COVID related mental health uh, studies he did, but. Um, yeah, this was a pretty big study uh, where they, he, he looked at people that had dementia uh, and compared, um, so they were all 50 years and over. And um, in one group, the, the patients um, had uh, been prescribed lithium and in the other group um, of patients, they didn't. And uh, this in this cohort, there were 29,618 patients um, were included. And then out of those 548 were exposed to lithium. And the mean age was actually 73.9 years old. And uh, it was pretty divided by male and female, 40% male, 33% female. And um, he also looked at um, if they were married or not, and so on. So 71% were uh, still married. Um, and um, yeah, and he screened all that data sets. And uh, the conclusion was that there seems to be an association between lithium use and the decreased risk of developing dementia, which, uh, which may be supportive of the idea that um, using lithium uh, may be a disease-modifying treatment for dementia and it could be promising to um, to continue this and um, yeah my suggestion was to um, to like and also the future would be to now look into 
um, more mechanistics, why lithium seems to be um, helpful. And um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a pretty interesting study and um, I like the these type of studies where you go through the data set you have already aggregated and um, and gain insights from it because we have a lot of data. We just don't have enough people like Dr. Chen that systematically look through them and, um, and uh, look at the bigger picture. So I, I like that. What really stuck in my mind, and, and you know, you got to kind of smile. They they looked at um, cases where you know the water supply had a higher concentration of lithium uh, there for whatever reason, and they were able to you know have it you know, observe in a statistically significant effect even even with it being in the water supply. And of course, you got to think there's a for some entrepreneur, you know, that, you, you know, you, I don't know what the therapeutic levels are versus, you know, I didn't look into that. But um, the whole notion of putting it in the water or like we do with fluoride or, um, you know, a particular bottled water product uh, is just kind of amusing. It's the association with, you know, apparent protective effects seems to be there. So <laughs> what about that? Yeah, yeah, there are a lot of, if it's actual spring waters that went through deep, um, deep sediment, it's naturally in there. It's just, um, if you don't use like a deep sediment water, basically groundwater, then it's, um, it's not in there. Or if you like use just, um, yeah, filtered water where you filter everything out. It's not in there anymore. So, yeah, it's interesting. It's um, it's a public health. Um, it's a big public health um, study, basically. I, I like those. Just make sure there's no other um, sub harmful substances in your groundwater source, or you may there might be beneficials, and then that'll be outweighed by. The unbeneficials. Oh yeah, please don't go to a to a puddle and take that water. There may be a mulvai in there, and stuff like. Don't do that. But uh, if you may, you know, if it's, I, yeah. In in Europe, there's a lot of clinics and stuff that use these natural. Um, deep spring waters but it's it's pretty regulated like uh, w with the quality is constantly checked so uh yeah don't don't just go ahead and use your own groundwater in the backyard that is maybe just a meter or two meters deep it's, um, but it, there's definitely an upside to to leave sediments and stuff in there that were supposed to be in the water. Uh, at least that, you know, they're huge data sets like in Europe from these type of, it's like a very traditional approach. Uh, um, they have this healing clinics for chronic ill patients and you get pay like it, at least in Germany, it gets the public health pays for it if you like have chronic rheumatism or mental health thing issues or stuff. It's like a... Wait, a they pay for class. it. 
Yeah. Wow. That's like yeah. inconceivable in the U.S. currently. Yeah, like my mom, she had like, uh, like with, uh, a different uh, chronic, like we have different chronic illnesses in our family. So, uh, yeah, they pay like two weeks every two years or so. So you go to this clinic, they have you completely checked out as a nutritionist, you know, mental health specialist, uh, people that um, do ex make you an exercise plan. And then you have these natural spring waters. It's actually kind of like FDA approved water. So um, they, they are heavily regulated. And then you walk through them, you bathe in them, you drink every day from them. And you're supposed to walk in nature. It's like a nice nature spots, like either by the sea, if you have lung issues, like more respiratory issues. And it's in the Alps or in other nature spots. It depends on what you have. If you have allergies, being high up above 2000 meters is good for you because there are no, there are less allergens because those microbes. Uh, those the air quality tends to be better. Yeah. Yeah, so there are different spots depending on what illness you have that they send you. If you're a single mom, I think you have the right to go every two years with your children to de-stress. Then you get teached like parenting approaches, like all of this type of stuff. It's really good and I think it's really helpful. That sounds so cool. I had no idea. Well, yeah, it would be straightforward to, um, you know, produce a formulation with lithium supplements, but um, you got to be careful with that <laughs> whenever the business gets ahead of the science. But it was uh, some suggest interesting uh, suggestion that there's apparently a, an observable effect uh, for lithium as a protective approach for uh, dementia. Yeah, I think that was mostly our week. We had, you know, um, more roundtable, couple of rooms uh, yesterday and on Friday um, that we discussed um, our positive and negative um, recent publications uh, where AI can be leveraged in a very positive way, like finding new uh, drugs, new antibodies to treat different disorders, but also very negative ones, um, scary ones, where you can um, develop fairly easily um, bio or weapons out of um, compounds. So we discussed that and how to regulate it and what our responsibilities are um yeah so i think it was a really interesting week we have a really interesting week ahead um so follow the club if you like these rooms so we have on monday really um just an introduction meeting for one of our guest speakers we'll introduce them to the club and to um clubhouse um Dr. McKenzie, he will be speaking on Wednesday. He um, looks at um, 
uh, chiral molecular interactions and different types, uh, you know, it's important for chem for basic chemistry, for basic um, uh, material uh, development, and now he um, looked at those um, uh, interactions in living cells. It's really cool. It um, it's, uh, it gives us insight into very basic uh, or fundamentals of molecular biology. So it's, uh, it's a really important study and we'll have that room on Wednesday since he's in Europe. Uh, it's at 1 p.m. EST. And then a room I'm really looking forward to is on Tuesday at 9 p.m. EST. We have the senior scientist, Dr. Rushan from Google who developed the uh, time crystals uh, with quantum computing. And we had kind of a little bit of a roundtable discussion on Friday here about the time crystals. And uh, yeah, and he gladly uh, said yes to come and answer more questions we had. So yeah, he will be coming on Tuesday and um, then we'll have Dr. Fletcher. He is also a scientist, a neuroscientist, and he developed a more systematic method for training creativity. Uh, so everyone can be more creative. It sounds like, ah, oh, it's just fun. We, you know, being creative, it's just a fun artsy thing to do. I think create, being creative is the more most important thing to train for the future because we need more innovations at the faster pace. We have um, not just exponential growth and resources needs, uh, super exponential growth and resources needs with a limited time. And we don't have a super exponential growth of resources um, available for our needs. Um, if you wanna read more about it, read the book Scale. So we need, uh, the only way to solve it is to have constant um, progress and innovations at a faster and faster pace. And the only way we can be really innovative is to be really creative. And the only ones that are really creative um, are humans so far. So the better job we do in being creative, the, um, we will have a future or we will die because we don't have resources. And then we'll have Dr. Lewis on Friday, why evolution favors symmetry is a mathematician and philosopher. And it's a really uh, interesting evolution room we'll have. They published a paper recently. And then on Saturday, it's also really exciting. We'll have Dr. Uh, Guku P. Dennis from Max Planck Institute, and he is one of the inventors of organic neuromorphic electronics. So it's a really brand new, exciting field in uh, electronics and neuroscience combined. So uh, yeah, it will be, I'm really looking forward to that one. Yeah, if you have any last comments, uh, or questions, please go ahead and ask. Um, the hour is almost up. So yeah, please um, 
Yeah, and thank you everyone for being here, for supporting us, for asking questions. Um, it's been great dis discussions. We are really, I mean, I'm really happy about these discussions and I really love them. The guest speakers uh, always come back um, and say, this was such a great discussion, such a welcoming group and uh, with very interesting questions. So I really appreciate that. Uh, so thank you to everyone. Thanks for our great team. We are really great. We are doing a really great teamwork. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, I'm happy we have this journey together. Me too. And given that it seems that no one else has any questions or comments, I guess we can close it. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. So glad that you could be with us today. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Okay, let's close the happy Sunday and um, let's close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you. Thanks.